We hope that this message encourages you today. For more information about us, please visit myfreedom.church. More than 10 years, actually. Um, last time I got to speak here at Freedom Church uh, was about 10 years ago. And uh, looks like life has been good to you. And I say that because knowing Mark and knowing Kathy, I've been tracking them on Facebook, and these are incredible people. I love them dearly. Uh, sadly, because we live so many thousands of miles away in Los Angeles, and depending upon how schedules work out, I, I already invited your wife earlier to said we have a we have a guest room, so the two of you can come and join. If you, if you want to bring Jeff and Ashita with you, that's great. Uh, we'll have a great time. Yeah, I, I, we do that a lot, unfortunately. <laughs> we understand that. Well, gosh, where do, where do I begin to introduce myself? Well, I've been in ministry now 35 years. Uh, it's been a while. Learned a few things. What's that, woman of God? Yes. Woo! Woo! Yeah. So, and um, it's been, always been my passion to... Discover God, I guess would be the phrase. And I say, I know we all may say that, but I know for myself, when sometimes you start doing that, um, all of a sudden what begins to arise is our differences of opinion, differences of thought. But I do believe we're in an interesting time right now, not only in the United States, but uh, around the world as far as Christendom goes. I think it's interesting that uh, you mentioned the World Car Freedom Day or something like that it was. It made me think of, in America, we have a, a, a sport called baseball, similar to cricket, and we have every year the World Series. Yeah. <laughs> There's only two teams from Canada even in the league. <laughs> I mean, how's it the World Series? Mexico isn't even invited to play. I mean, I don't, you know, it doesn't make sense to me. Anyway, I guess we'll just get into maybe some of these thoughts today and see if uh, hopefully I can encourage you a bit. Yeah. Um, you know, when Jesus said, follow me in Luke five twenty-seven, and uh, to Simon and Andrew, he said, uh, follow me and I'll make you uh, become fishers of men in Mark 1, 17. And they left everything they had and they followed Jesus. I want you to think of something for a moment. These guys had no clue of a virgin birth. You know, Jesus didn't walk around with a t-shirt saying, my mommy thinks I'm special. <laughs> and on the back it says, virgin born. Of course, if you did that today, they would think he's part of an airline, I think. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's that kind of thing, right? So, if you consider that, then they also had, knew nothing of the cross knew nothing of the resurrection, and yet we're willing to leave all to follow this guy. Now, we may have the benefit of knowing about the virgin birth, the crucifixion, and the resurrection, but I almost wonder sometimes if our intense focus on our gratitude for those things kind of puts almost what he said and did on a secondary level. But if you think about it, the cross really and the resurrection was a result of what he said and did. Yeah. So is it possible that we need to maybe think for a moment 
when we read the words of Jesus in the Bible, when we, when we think about the heart of God, you know, it's interesting how, you know, the Bible comes, the, the first epistle that's technically written depends upon who you read, but it was the Apostle Paul's Galatians, and simultaneously, just before or after, nobody knows dates for sure, James wrote, 30 years after the resurrection. And it's interesting how the ministry of Moses begins with writing laws on stone. Jesus' ministry after the resurrection begins with breathing on everyone, saying, just receive the Spirit. It's a very different approach. Not to mention that while the laws were being written up on the mountain, they were building a golden calf on the ground, and it's interesting how golden calves and laws seem to go together very well, because those laws didn't even get down the mountain before they were broken, literally broken. So could it be that listening to the words of Jesus may be more important than all the theology and focus we have on the virgin birth, cross, and resurrection? Could it be something about the life of God? And the reason why I say life of God is because that life is in us. Could we possibly have a view of these amazing things Jesus did rather than recognizing that same life that caused disciples to, would-be disciples, to drop their nets and follow him breathes in us? There's a guy named Zecharias in Luke 19, 5 through 10. I'm going to read it out of, I'm being that I'm, in England, I decided to use the English Standard Version because I didn't know if that's the acceptable one here, right, you know. Um, or I guess I could have used the King James, but then the, that, that has its issues. So we'll just go with this, and hopefully we'll get close to what's there, huh? In Luke 19, 5 through 10, it says, And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Now, consider, Jesus is on the road. Uh, Zacchaeus hears about this guy named Jesus. He's kind of a short guy, so he's up in a tree. And he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down. I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down, received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone, to be, he's, gone, he's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. <gasps> and Jesus and then Zechariah stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, I give half my goods, uh, I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyway in anything, I restore fourfold. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to his house, since he's also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Or literally, in, in the Greek, it says, Kai soze tau Apollopoulos, which basically means it was a terrible pronunciation of that last word. Sorry about that for my Greek friends. Uh, really, what that means is to seek and to restore that which has been destroyed. The word lost and destroyed is the same thing. So whenever you see the word destroy in, in the biblical context, particularly in the Gospels, just think the word lost, too. It's also that, or actually disappear. That's another word, way of saying it. And the thing that I think is interesting about these, this segment of scripture is because, you know how the Bible is, it's so multifaceted. It's, so, it's not just three-dimensional, it's beyond that. There's all these different facets you can get out of this. But the thing that kind of really stuck out to me was what penetrated here. Now, the way I used to read this, 
and maybe you've read it this way too, is that Jesus said, okay, I'm going to come and have basically dinner at your house today, which is really nice. And then he goes from having, you know, dinner, guy comes down. So these folks kind of grumble and he has dinner. And then this guy, his heart is totally changed and he starts giving to the poor and, and rest, restores things that he's done wrong. That's how we've read it. But the catch is it's not how it's read. That's not is what's there. We seem to think because he came in contact with Jesus, he gives half of his good to the poor, half of his goods to the poor, and, and if he defrauds anyone, he gives back fourfold. But that's not what it says. First of all, it's interesting. The word Zacchaeus is Zachi in Hebrew, which is Zayin Kaf Yad. It literally means to be one who's who is pure. So it's interesting where, where the, 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 the scripture is talking about a man who's pure but accused of being a sinner. So we have this pure one, actually pure to the point of transparency. And yet in his religion of his day, they said, quote, he has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. My first suggestion is, is that religiosity, whatever form it takes, including the Christian religion, I put those two words together, is that it seems to deny one's identity for the sake of its rules. So he says he's gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Now, and, the, and then me immediately is actually what happens there. It says, as soon as Zacchaeus hears this, he stops, turns to Jesus and says, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and I've defrauded anyone of anything I restore fourfold. So he's now justifying himself on their accusation. It wasn't that he met Jesus and now he's giving to the poor. It's the other. He's justifying himself. And consider what he, the justification, it's, it literally comes from Exodus 22.1, Proverbs 6.31, and even King David in 2 Samuel uh, 12.6 talks about the restoring of one's goods when you've defrauded people. So he's, he's saying, no, Lord, I obey this law. I, they're saying I'm a sinner. No, I'm a good guy, Lord. And Jesus seems to dismiss the whole thing and then simply says, well, today salvation has come to this house because he's a son of Abraham. You see, salvation is coming to his house not because you think he's a sinner or because he thinks he's justified by the rules. He is receiving salvation today because of his identity. It's about who he is, not about what he does or doesn't do. And that's difficult because when you live in this world, which is... Uh, well, we can get into that in a little bit. But when we live in this system, this system is all about external behaviors. If I got my external stuff right, then therefore my internal must be right. And that's not true. Now, I do believe that as our internal stuff becomes unveiled, it definitely will affect things on the outside. I have no problem with that. But it's never the other way around. So, one of the significant aspects of Abraham's connection to God was there was no concept of legal or moral sin. 
Go back and read Abraham. Matter of fact, you go through the entire book of Genesis from verse 1 to the closing verse of Genesis, there's never once a sin offering. And yet, Abraham finds himself in covenant with a Melchizedekian priest, which is the priesthood of Jesus. You've probably heard me maybe say these things maybe through Facebook or other things if you track what we do at all. And that's that uh, I've become very strong in the area of grasping the Melchizedekian priesthood in contrast to the Levitical priesthood. Okay? And the one thing about Melchizedek, which is really interesting, that entire priesthood, no sacrifices, no rules, no blood even shed for covenant. What? Go back and reread all those things. So when Jesus grabs the bread and wine, he hearkens back to what Melchizedek brought in Genesis 14 with Abraham. It's very different. It's very strange because I'm convinced God thinks of us more on the basis of who we are than what we do. Thus, he breathed on them. And says, receive the spirit. As opposed to, here's a book, do these rules. In light of that, just just to to contrast it a a little bit more, Jesus was saying that this transparent, pure one is actually a son of Abraham. He was focusing on the man's identity, regardless of any religious system at present. And then he he adds, consider this is on the the back of the three most significant parables I think Jesus ever shared, which is the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Where he revolutionizes the picture of God. Okay, just to quickly, before we get into the next part of this, just to quickly think about what that is. When, when you think of the lost sheep, again, and I think it's because of our, this stuff, flesh, ego, serpent, whatever you want to call it, it's all the same. Um, all that kind of existence we have, what we wind up doing is we, we focus in on the sheep, who needed to repent. But if you go back and reread the parable, Jesus is focused on the shepherd. And his comment is, so which one of you, if you had a sheep that was lost, what would you do? And what he's actually doing is indicting the Pharisees here saying your shepherdship has got a problem because you're more excited about rejoicing with 99 than going after the one that's lost. That lostness is a product of your lack of desire to see reconciliation. That lostness is because of your focus on your rightness rather than that condition over there. And then he con- he's contrasting when he says all heaven rejoices. It's because this is what heaven is looking for. You're not looking for that. And even what is really interesting is the Greek word there for repent. 
that he uses? It's, it's in a past tense, which he's not, he's, it's kind of funny because if you kind of read the, the phrase, it wouldn't be, it, it, was, it would, wouldn't say something like, and all heaven rejoices because he's repenting or repented now. It's actually he repented a long time ago, which doesn't make sense. But it does in this respect. He's saying, Mr. Pharisee, you need to understand, it's never too late. It's, this sheep may have been lost, but his heart was already seeking that reconciliation. But you don't know that because you didn't go find out about it. Then he moves into the parable of the lost coin. How many have ever seen a coin get up and just leave? That law, it's, you know, you know the, the, on the first parable, at least you said there was that stupid sheep, how he got lost, he went astray, he needs to get back with God. But no, how do you do that with a coin? How does a coin get up and go astray? It doesn't. Because ultimately what this whole story is about, a house where a celebration is going to wind up. But what happened here with the lost coin, and you probably have heard messages, and rightfully so, about how the, the lost coin, you know, the coin doesn't lose its value because it's lost and all that stuff. You heard that. But here's the challenge, really. He wasn't talking about a lost coin. He was talking about a house that was in a mess, and because of the mess, the coin got lost. Now he's again indicting the Pharisees. This whole religious system thing you got going on here? There's a lot of valuable things that are lost in the midst of it, but you, you don't even bother cleaning the house to look for that which is valuable. What do you say? But in order for that coin to be found, you're going to have to turn the lamp on, you're going to have to sleep, sweep this house, then you'll find your coin. And then, of course, we have our parables of the prodigal son. Which again, so he's, he's trying to revolutionize God's th thinking in their minds. How, how am I supposed to think about God? The same thing here with the Zacchaeus story. It's the ideas, it's not about sin here. It's not about what all that is about. It's about who you are. That's the central focus. Um, I hope I'm not redundant by going back to Genesis because that's where I live a lot. I've been teaching this thing called Genesis Factor for about 25 years. And uh, some of you have been through it. It's constantly updated and revamped. Um, it's now available even on DVD, believe it or not. But it's not the 22-hour version. It's the 10-hour version. Don't ask me how I was able to cut that down. It was not easy. And then, of course, I went, just came from Bogner Regis, and they asked me, can you do it in six hours? <laughs> no. Um, so... <laughs> But I want to do focus in on something in Genesis, if I can. Um, and that's Genesis 3. We've all heard these before. But, you know, when we think of sin, how many of you, when we think of sin, may, many times for us, the first thing that comes to our minds is what, thank you, Strong's exhaustive concordance, that decided that the only definition for sin is to miss the mark. Well, not exactly. The, the, the Hebrew word there, chateh, which would mean to miss the mark in simple archery terms. Yeah, I get that. But hamarotano, the same Greek word that's used to augment chateh, 
it actually means to live without form. has very little to do with a missing of a mark, especially when you see that word sin first appear in Genesis chapter 4, where there is no rules. Right? Sin lies at the door. Well, if sin was breaking the commandments, how do you do that? So what is it that happened? Why is this Zacchaeus story important? Because Jesus is almost Dissing, if that's a word you use out here, uh, dissing the, I have to watch that because I've, I have a tendency to use American words and people either don't understand me or they laugh profusely. <laughs> like, I don't know if you remember the very first time I ever spoke ever in the, in the UK was back in 2004 and it was at a prophet's conference and I was asked to speak on women in ministry and because and, and of a book I wrote called The Divine Womb, The Prophetic Purpose of Women in the New Millennium. And... Um, we just had lunch, and I had gotten some food on my trousers, because you don't say that in America. So the, my, opening statement, my opening statement to the microphone, as I looked down, I went, oh my, I dirtied my pants. <laughs> and I couldn't figure out why folks were laughing. So I, 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 I have to watch myself a lot. So watch I, yourself. Yeah. <laughs> No, I only do that once a week. <laughs> you all know the verse, the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows when you eat of it, the tree, your eyes will be opened, knowing good and evil. Settle there for a moment. Because most of us think the sin, the, the, the sin was not doing what God said. And we go fall right back into the pattern of the rights and wrongs. But it's what was going on here that's really the issue. For God knows that in the day that you... Can you imagine this? You're already the image and likeness of God. You, you, are, you are God going somewhere to happen. An emanation of God going somewhere to happen. All right? And all of a sudden, you come across this... Well, for the, lack of, for the sake of terms right now, you come across this creature that's claiming he knows more about God than you do. Wait a minute. Shouldn't there have been, been more of a response of, well, that can't be true because I, I am an emanation of God. All I have to do is look in my heart and I can see all there is. But no, all of a sudden he comes across somebody, or they come across somebody that seems to know something more about God than they did. And immediately by doing that, which is this is, if you really want to get into your spirituality, your spirituality is constructed of really one specific thing. And it's the word desire. The soul is really nothing more than desire. Well, I thought soul is mind, will, and emotions and all those things, and I'm not saying any of those things are wrong, but I'm just kind of bring it right down. You think that the intellect, the mind, operates on the basis of desire. Our emotions are the product of these things called desire. So really when you, when you get down to the crooks of what makes us us, it's this thing called desire. God created a desire to receive. In, in Hebrew, it's ratzon. 
which is the same word as earth, aretz. And we've been created from the aretz. Now we think the planet earth, but you've got to realize in Genesis the planet didn't even exist yet. I mean, this, we call it the seven days of creation. God created planet earth. It doesn't say that. What it does say is it took whatever these seven days supposed to be for God to find a place to rest. And that couldn't happen until his image was complete. Okay, so in, move, in moving this for a second, we're now having this issue of des- God creates a desire to receive that eventually gets the name Adam. Well, you and I are a desire to receive. The thing is, is we have this amazing choice that the scripture gives us that desire to receive for ourselves only or desire to receive and reflect. Desire to receive and give back which we have been receiving. And there is a process that we go through to to rediscover this, our our true identity, and how to become like God. Maybe maybe that's what we'll end today in in a little bit about how that process goes. I don't know why I'm going there, except to think maybe there's a prophetic thing here. What does this church desire? As a group together, what is your desire, your passion? What makes you get up and cry in the morning for its fulfillment? What makes you breathe in the morning as a, com- uh, as a, a community of people? You know, because one of the attributes of the fall, which I'm way off notes here, but one of the attributes of the fall is our sense of individuality. That ego that says, I'm different than you. When in the spiritual world, there's no such thing as individual, individual, individual. In the spiritual world, we're all one creature. And in the spiritual world, you really want to get technical. There's really only two, two, two things that exist, the creator and the creature. And his end game was... To create a creature that looks like him so to, to the point where you can't tell them apart. So then it's like creature, creation, creator, creator, creature, what, who? That's called intimacy. I'm jumping all over, but this, I don't know, I've just I really started to hook into something here, I think. And if it's okay with you, it's something about what you desire. And, and finding a unity around this desire, this united desire. And I believe God has put it in everybody here. And as there's probably others that God would yet add that it's in them. But there's something about, I feel like, gosh, if you asked for the prophetic, I wasn't thinking that at all. I feel like you guys are about to turn a corner if you haven't already. Okay, and it has to do with a united desire. You know, so many times we get wrapped up in everything from, especially in the, I don't know what it's like here, but I would imagine, you know, we're human. (laughs) So we all do the same thing, just different ways. And we get wrapped up in leadership styles. We like this music. We like that music. We like the, all these kind of conflicts that we wind up creating. But really what it comes down to is an unfulfilled desire that I'm looking to try to get this square peg in a round hole. And what's interesting, many times the discontentment within people's personal lives show up as, I don't like the church and I'm leaving. And it has nothing to do with the church. I'm not saying, leader, I'm not saying you know, Mark and, 
and, and, and uh, Kathy can walk on water at will. Sometimes I wonder about Jeff. But, you know, <laughs> he has that old joke, he knows where the rocks are, you know. But <laughs> it's not about us being perfect. I mean, I love your, your sign here. I was looking at that earlier. It's not about being perfect. It's about, there's one line in the song that really just rang to me. I, something like, I sing hallelujah as I live in the mystery. Is that how it goes? The middle of the mystery. There's something about, I believe, what God may be trying to communicate about desire today. You know, it's interesting. <laughs> My daughter just put a, a post on Facebook I thought was funny, where it has this picture of this guy and this gal in bed together, and he's facing this way, kind of all tangled up in his sheets, and she's facing that way, all tangled up in, in his sheets, uh, her sheets. And then the caption was something to the effect of, so whoever thought marriage was a constant spooning? You know, everybody's always cuddled nice in bed together. When actually my marriage is so many times, well, what happened to that? Because I, I, th- I think about that picture, and I think, I can remember when Karen and I first started dating, I mean, we'd be out together to one o'clock in the morning. Then she'd go home and then we'd talk together on the phone till like four in the morning. Then go to bed for two hours, get up and go to work where we both worked in the same organization together. Okay, that we would meet for lunch. All this amazing desire, so to speak, that was happening. And then you get married and after about a year, then the kids show up and it's kind of like, I'm just going to bed. Leave me alone. I just, what happened to the desire? Marriages break up because of a loss of desire. Had a pastor friend recently working on his third marriage. No judgment. That's not what I'm saying. My point is, is there's something going on. And he asked me out to lunch. And, and we, were, we were sitting at lunch. And he looked at me. He said, John. He said, uh, I really want this marriage to work. But we really got some issues here. So I said, let's not talk about your marriage. He said, what do you mean? He said, I'm not interested in your marriage. Tell me about the woman you're laying next to that caused you to ravish her. The first time you saw her. Tell me about that lady. Let's, not, let's get this third person of the ungodly trinity called marriage out of the picture for a minute. Because marriage becomes an entity. Rather than a relationship. Sometimes. It becomes a theological correctness. Right? Especially for us Christians. Because marriage is supposed to go. So tell me about what excited you when you first saw her. Tell me what still excites you. Why you want this to work. What is it about her that you desire? What is freedom's church? desire that burns in you. Coming to that mind, the whole point, what the serpent was doing to, this, to, the, to the woman at the time, he's trying to create a new desire. She had a des- She was fulfilled as image and likeness. Matter of fact, even the, even the phrase uh, image and likeness, you talk about man and woman. Image in Hebrew is tzalem, which is masculine. Kadnut, uh, um, uh, sorry, wrong word. Um, Kadnut nu. And that word is feminine. Likeness is feminine. Image what we translate as masculine. So there's, a, there, there's something about this, this revelation of union and, and likeness and stuff. And, and understand, I'm not talking about genitals now. I'm talking about spiritual qualities, okay? 
And so all of a sudden then, he's now trying to provoke a desire she didn't have before. Because all of a sudden it's, I know something more about God than you do. And you've been thinking you're his image and likeness. But unless you eat of this tree, then you'll really be like God. If you don't, eh, not so much. So he's now creating a desire in her to want to become like God. Hear that? Want to become like God, but in so doing, she's actually denying that she is like God. And of course, the final nail that goes into that coffin is that to be like God, you have to know what's good and what's evil, what is right and what is wrong. Which now is a false desire because it can't be fulfilled. Because then you'll never know enough about good. You'll never know enough about evil. As a matter of fact, uh, there was, uh, years ago, there was a, a certain minister in America who wrote all kinds of books on cults and all this stuff. And man, I was, you know, because I wanted to know the truth. So I'm studying all this stuff. And after a while, I was feeling pretty yucky. Didn't connect the dots after about three weeks of listening to all these tapes. And back then, dating myself, we had cassette tapes back then. Um, listening to all these tapes and reading his books. I'm just feeling, and if, and all of a sudden, God kind of just broke through and he says, why are you wasting your time with all that? Oh, well, God, I don't want to get off. I don't want to be misled. You already misled, John. Spend time with the authentic. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. But it, see, what, 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 what the serpent was doing was creating a desire for her to want something she already had. And what was within her was infinite. So consider with me, Freedom Church. Is the real warfare, I mean, you have to forgive me. I'm, I have two models in my life now. I got delivered from deliverance. Where everything had to, got to get people delivered, got to get people delivered, got to get, you know what? Just love people. It's amazing how that delivers people. <laughs> Rather than sitting in a chair, giving a paper bag and having barf, you know, so you can get them delivered. I don't know if some of you came through any of that movement back in the late uh, 70s, early 80s, but there was a whole movement on that where if you didn't barf in a bag, you didn't get free of the demon. Yeah. I won't go to that story right now. Talk about my, my well, I will tell you. Right? I thought about it. When we were going through this early on, we weren't even officially married yet. It's amazing this woman married me. It's amazing she's still married to me. But because we got into this deliverance, Pigs in the Parlor was the name of the book. Have you ever heard of that? No? Oh, yeah. You're so blessed. He's been delivered from that kind of deliverance, you know. Um, and, and, you know, if depending upon... Persons, they tell you in the book how a person would look at you, their attitude. These were demons that are manifesting, you know. So I read the book. So now because I read the book, I knew, you see. You know how that goes, right? <laughs> I read the book. And so my wife said, well, she wasn't my wife yet. My girlfriend, Karen, says something to me at one point, And I look at her and I go, that's an evil spirit, isn't it? She said, what? I said, now that's rebellion and you know it. And before you know it, 
My wife was four foot ten and three quarters, and at the time, 90 pounds at best. Okay. Well, I'm on top of her with my knees on her shoulders trying to command, command this demon out of her. She's crying, and I'm saying, that spirit of sympathy is not going to get the best. I mean, it was terrible. You know, when I talk about religion and stuff, I say it as a former expert. <laughs> you understand? I'm not saying it as, you know, these hypothetical and I'm so spiritual. I am the poster boy for how to do it wrong. <clears throat> The serpent was creating a desire because it knew, for lack of a better phrase, and, and for that matter, in the end game, you'll find that the serpent actually wasn't so much uh, uh, apart from them as as much as an aspect of the creation system of which they were a part. So it's kind of this, that's because, you know, we're talking about the Eve. It's not like I'm, you know, we can do Adam later, but, you know. Actually, they're both called Adam. You know that, right? Until Genesis chapter 3. Okay, good. So, but he's trying to provoke a desire. Because once desire is in operation, it seeks fulfillment. But if I can get you to desire something, if you consider, I'm going to get you to desire something that's going to put you on a kind of a, a loop, which is the knowledge of good and evil, which is a sliding scale all the time. Okay? You, you, can, you can't pin it down. That'll put you on a loop. And this is the world we live in. This is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is it. You know, consider this. When Adam, this, the, the Bible says, you know, that God created and Adam gave names to the animals. Right? Let's dial that back for a minute and just listen to the Hebraic concept for the moment. God's creative force was in operation and we give it definition. What definition do we bring here? What desire do we have? Sometimes, maybe people have been in church for a long time, maybe been in this one, and we're, we're constantly looking. Is it possible that the, lack of a better phrase, the serpent in our lives has caused us to desire something that we're on a loop rather than realizing the fulfillment of our desire is right here among us and not anywhere else as a community of people at Freedom Church. That the full revelation of identity that God has is right here. And all we need to do, like with Zacchaeus and like with Jesus, all we need to do is recognize the identity issue. And find fulfillment there. Where we're not, in a sense, constantly trying to reach out for something. And then before you know it, well, you know, Marcus, he's just, you know, you know how, I don't know if it happened to you this way, but for us it's like this. You know, a person comes in the first week and this is the greatest church in sliced bread. Three months down the road, I don't feel love here anymore. Or it's kind of like a sports team, Right? If things go well for the congregation, look what we did together. If things are going bad, that pastor, man, we need to get rid of the coach. He's just the pastors. What are these desires? What's happening? You know, I thought it was maybe going to get deeper into other aspects of the scripture today, but I, I don't know. I hope I'm not disappointing. My heart is just the, the issue is just something about the desire of Freedom Church. And it's about recognizing that like when the serpent says, to us, not just you will not surely die, but don't you know 
that if you eat of this, then you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And getting us to desire something. And many times we even come into church with, this, with a desire because of maybe a ministry we saw on television. How many, you know, I wrote a book called Why Ministers Fall. And one of the things I really talk about in the book is not so much the issue of why a, a minister falls into some form of immorality, but the Christian culture around it that encourages and empowers it. You say, we think, oh, well, if there was no pornography on TV, let me tell you something. There was no pornography in David's day, but he did real good with Bathsheba anyway. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's not, let's not blame pornography. Let's not blame all those things. Stop. What happens to a lot of us in ministry is we have the sense of call, a sense of passion, a sense of vision, and God begins to assemble people around us that have similar vision, again, mutual desire. But then all of a sudden, there's the comparative because of what we saw brother so-and-so do down the block or what sister so-and-so says on television. And now there's another desire in there. And then you start comparing. Yeah, well... But they don't have that desire like brother so-and-so on television. That's what success looks like. Can't be this. And no different than the serpent did to Eve, Christian television does to us. I'm not saying it's bad. It's not a bad or good thing. It's not a right or wrong, good or evil issue. It's an issue of what does it do to our desire. And unfortunately, what we wind up saying is, well, I want that for us. Why? What if instead we, we become intimate with each other? I mean, how many times marriages fail because I want that for us? Rather than discovering what we have. What made it special? What was it when you saw her or him that went, wow, my soulmate, to use terms, you know, whatever, whatever phrases you want to use. And sometimes, coming to terms with, sometimes we've gotten together and we totally wanted something other than this. And down the road, it's a disaster, kids and all. What's your desire? Zacchaeus, pure one. There's a pure desire here. There's a pure desire from God in this room. And it's no longer like in Zacchaeus' case, well, this is what sin looks like, or, or this is how I'm going to justify my behavior. It's not about that. It's about whose son I am. What's the, what is the child of your desire? What is, what is, you are a child of desire, but what is that child of desire you're, you're bringing forth? How do I end this God? I guess by... All right. I guess one thing to say is that if, if God... Told, you know, see, now I'm of this opinion in the Garden of Eden. Uh, the, it, the whole thing was a construct to create a creature that can genuinely love. 
Because in order to genuinely love, I have to have the appropriate and correct choice not to. I mean, you start thinking of our relationships around here. Let's say you're married. There's something special about he chose me. She wants me. It's a choice that had to be there in the garden. And I think the idea that God created the garden and said, don't eat this tree, and if you do, I'm going to be really ticked off at you, is a misnomer. Because we even start, even in translations, I read some of the translations, we start reading in, into it a character of God that's not there. God was never angry over their decision. Because it had to be real. And the beauty of it is he had a fail-safe in the system. When they chose the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which was in Hebrew, it's called the Reshimon or the Zacharun, the remembrance, that they would remember home. Even after they left. But then, then they would have to desire home. He totally left it up to choice. Totally left it to unfold in choice. So the whole point then is, when I choose home, when I choose the Father, when I choose Jesus, when I choose that reality, it's so real and genuine. It's so, it's, that's why, I once heard years ago from a rabbi, his name was Michael Laitman, said something very powerful. He said, in true spirituality, there is no, in true spirituality, there is no coercion. And I'm more and more convinced that the way we've preached hell was very coercive. And that's maybe a good reason why we have some of the problems we have in church, because people have been coerced into it for a fear of wrath, a fear of hell, and all these other things. And so we get now these people who are coerced into something, into the same room, and then before you know it, we can't find unity because of how we got here. But, like Jesus, what was that opening... Come down, I'm going to stay at your house today. He didn't say, yet, you're saved. He didn't say any of those things. He said, I just want to hang with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, Jesus' worst, worst accusation against him was that he was a friend of sinners. <laughs> and also that he was a wine-bibber. I got something to live up to. <laughs> I don't want to be like Jesus. Nobody accused me of being a wine bibber yet, so I got something to work up to. <laughs> you follow? This, there was something about this, all of this. When we start looking at Jesus' ministry, what he did, all these parables, the things I was sharing about, lost coin, all this. What is the central desire here? Jesus wasn't about saving us from the fires of hell as much as it was, can we just have a meal together? Because what I'm after is not from you being afraid of some flames. What I'm after is that when you look into my eyes, we see each other. Because that's who you were from the beginning. You are the image and likeness of God. And to even believe you are not is to live under the power of the serpent and the fall. To believe you're less than right now is under the power of the fall. This may sound crazy, but Jesus didn't die on a cross and raise three days later 
so you can become like God. Because you already were. Jesus wind up dying and raising again on the third day. A lot of different theology things here we can go through, but the simplest was to give us a situation where we will have absolutely no excuse to believe other than the fact we are the image and likeness of God. We can't say, I'm not worthy, cross. Right? We can't say, yeah, but I sinned, cross. Yeah, but, you know, my life sucks, new life, resurrection. We have no excuse. Either I'm going to accept the fact I am the image and likeness of God and need to start emanating from that space. Or just say, you know, Jesus was a waste of time. Thanks anyway. But then there was more. And I guess that's, that's the, the other element here. And that's what I just keep going, going back to. You know, th- think of it. If God said, guys, the day that you eat of this, you're going to fall into this death sleep kind of thing. Well, here's a question. If God said then, please don't eat of that, why has it changed? It hasn't. The fact that we're eating still from the tree of knowledge of good and evil is still going against what God's request was. Can we let it go? As a congregation, can we let it go? And find our mutual desire. You know, we use other terms, and sometimes maybe to our detriment, we use terms like, what's the vision of the church? What's the purpose? Eh, Those are all great things. But what if we just kind of whittle it down to saying, why do we desire to do this? You're all here. There's a desire. Same rabbi, by the way, said something interesting about, he calls it the, uh, well, I'm modifying it a little bit. It's called the power of the group. Because in, 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 uh, in Hebraic type spirituality, where Jesus comes from, by the way, just in case you didn't know, he was Jewish. Okay, he may not have lived by those rules, but he did have his roots. He's that was strongly of the opinion that the only way to develop spiritually is to be around other people who want to develop spiritually. Thus, you are one. Why? Because in that world, we're one creature anyway. The delusion is that we're separate here. And as a result, so what is it that causes you to gather here? Oh, I'm not just talking about although maybe the music or you like the preaching or, or you know, some of the vision you perceive. But there's something way down deep on the inside that says, I've got to be connected to this. Mm-hmm. If I may add, come hell or high water, because I'm sure you've had both. Or sometimes hell in the high water, right? You know? I'm sure you've been... But, there's something about this. I can't let this go. I'm going to try to end it here in a minute. I've been trying to end for five minutes. But I can't let this go of this thing about the desire of Freedom Church. Because I do know this. The greater the desire, the greater the result. What the, what the serpent was doing, what that egoistic system was doing, was trying to create a desire that was outside of image and likeness. Hmm. I won't say to everybody what you said, but you kind of jokingly said something about the church and your changes earlier. 
I'm believing man of God. I'm not saying anything bad about people who left, but you know what? Sometimes as we begin to discover our desire together, there are folks who don't have the same desire. And that's okay. But what we have to do is find ours. Because when that becomes really rock solid and very clear and breathes, you know, the Bible says that something maybe we don't see that's there, but it's there. It says that God breathed into Ha'adam, the Adam, this breath of life. Well, guess what? He didn't breathe in and hold it. He exhaled into the mouth of God. And together, if you notice, by breathing in and out, it's again this, this picture of intimacy, close breath. When we have this kind of thing amongst us, then when folks come in, if you will, it's not that they got it, I'm not saying it's wrong and don't do it, but you know, we, sometimes we have then, you know, the 10 lesson new members class, and if you take off all those boxes, now you're a member and everything's great. If that worked, churches would never have the problems they do. But I do believe if we find the same desire, Almost what can't be totally that you can't plaster it up in three words on the screen. You, it can help frame it, but it's that core thing that says, I, I need to be with you. And our heads may have some real clashes. I'm to the point where I, I don't, I'm, this is tongue in cheek, but just hear me out for a minute. I don't believe in marriage anymore. You're kidding me. Well, what I mean is, is we do this whole ceremony, we get married, and then we have a conflict, and then we say, well, yes, but I stood before God and I got married. Like, that's supposed to be the reason why you stay together. How about never letting go of that desire to be together? Because honestly, the rules of marriage are useless without that. It's just a bondage like anything else. Well, I guess I just would end by saying maybe the whole message today was a bit of a prophetic word, just saying that there is a desire here. And I think maybe God's done some purging. Again, nothing against people. It's not about right or wrong, good or evil. Get that out of your mind for a minute. To, to get down to the core of this breathing desire. Because as the more clear that becomes, not here, but in here, it doesn't have to be clear here. I mean, there are definitely times I wake up in the morning and look, turn over, look at my wife, and it's not clear here, but definitely clear here. Something that becomes very clear, which I then do believe can be expressed, and it could be expressed in types of evangelism. It could be expressed in having a soup kitchen or however it manifests. But there's something here. Father, right now, I just pray for this amazing group of people that have been on a long journey. It's been about at least 10 years, no? I like that Hebrew number 10. The symbol of creativity and the symbol of trial. Father, I want to thank you. I pray that for Freedom Church, which may have seemed like a trial, that the trial is coming to an end. And that the conclusion is creation.
the creation of what you have been tooling and massaging for this decade to create a people that would have its unique expression in this vast thing called the body of Christ. And it's not just about winning souls now, God. It's about awakening, unveiling, unclothing the reality of the living Christ in humanity. Bless these people, Father. In Jesus' name. Whether you are listening or watching, we hope you enjoyed this message. Please consider giving us a rating on your preferred podcast provider. If you're watching, please hit the subscribe button and click the notification bell so that you never miss another video from Freedom Church.